If you found your place in John 4, we're going to be in verse 35. And I ask you to stand in respect of God's word and also to help me know when to start reading because everybody will be standing. That's really a lot of times what preachers are doing. They'll tell you, when you found your place, stand. That way they'll know, okay, everybody found their place. John 4, verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Well, Father, we thank you for today. For the opportunity we have to meet with Bethel Baptist Church. The freedom we have here in America to worship you openly. The fact that we have your word in our language where we can read it and study it and meditate upon it. Lord, I ask that you speak through your word tonight as we go through this passage to gain an understanding that you'll help us to labor effectually for you. We can trust you for the harvest at the end. Lord, guide me in everything I say tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. How many of you have heard this passage preached? Lift up your eyes. Fields are white. I don't think you've ever heard it preached the way I'm going to preach it tonight. This verse gets treated like a universal verse. What do you mean? This verse gets taken out of context and treated like, this verse is for you right now, no matter where you are. That's not true. This verse was Jesus speaking to a specific group of people at a specific time and place after a specific event. Not every field is white to harvest, and not always is any field white. So I want to back up and get the context of this passage. If we start at the beginning of chapter 4, all the way back to verse 1, when, the, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. So we are at the early part of Jesus' ministry. He's been down in Jerusalem. There's this group called the Pharisees. If you know anything about them, they were holier than thou believed that they were right and everybody else was wrong. They had power and were controlling people. And along came John the Baptist, and they tried to figure out, who are you? Why are you here? And why are you taking our followers away from us? And then Jesus comes on the scene, and now he's taken even more people than John. And the Pharisees have found out. And the Pharisees want to stop Jesus. They want to get rid of him. And so that's the point it comes to. Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and he finds out the Pharisees know what I'm doing, and they're not happy. It's time to go back up to Galilee. And so he'd have probably told his disciples, we're going back to Galilee, and if you know anything about the geography of Israel at the time of Christ, the southern area of Israel was called Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. There was an area called Samaria in the middle, and in the north was Galilee. And so verse 4 seems kind of strange. If you're down here and you're going up here, you must need to go through there, right? Not if you were a Jew in the time of Christ, you wouldn't. The Jewish people would cross over the Jordan River, go through modern-day Jordan, and cross back over the Jordan River. They wouldn't set foot in Samaria. Why? Because they were racists. 
the Jewish people, they're the descendants of Abraham through Isaac through Jacob, and they know the promises of God that were given to Abraham are their promises. But they lost the fact that the last part of the promise was, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. They wanted to be, we're blessed and you're not. God loves us and not you. They were full of themselves. And so they hated anyone that wasn't a Jew. They called them a Gentile, or if you use the Old Testament word, a heathen. In case you like to use the word heathen, calling somebody that, all it means is you're not a Gentile. Or I'm sorry, you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So unless you're a Jewish person in here, you would be a heathen. That's biblical. Okay, moving on from that. What is, so what's that got to do with Samaria? When you had a person who one parent was Jewish and one parent was Gentile and they had a child, that child was a Samaritan. It basically meant half-breed. It was a very harsh word they used on somebody. And the area of Samaria, going back in Old Testament history, the kingdom split, the northern kingdom got conquered by Assyria, and when Assyria conquered you, they would intermarry you with other peoples. And so they sent back Jew, uh, the Israelites that had been intermarried with, not, with Gentiles and had their children for hundreds of years living in that area, in that region. And so we've got a very mixed bloodline in Samaria. And the Jewish people wouldn't set foot in Samaria because that's where those, mixed, th those half-breeds live. If I go through Samaria, that's going to pollute me. I'm too good to go there. But Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He wasn't too good to go anywhere. He went where others wouldn't go. We're going to move quickly here through this. Verse 5, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied on his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It's likely been walking pretty much from sunrise with his disciples. You'd be weary too, wouldn't you? They get to the edge of the city. There's a well. He just sits down at the well. He's resting. It only makes sense. That's a reasonable thing to do. In verse 7, there cometh a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. He sits down, the disciples go into town, they go to buy food. Jesus did this on purpose. He knew who was coming. Here comes a woman. Now, if you were sitting at the side of a well with no way to get the water out, and somebody were coming to you with a water pot that could get the water, and you've been walking all day, it only makes sense that you'd ask them for a drink of water, right? Isn't that kind of the normal thing? Again, not in these circumstances. Look at verse Verse, uh, verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She is absolutely stunned. Here's this Jewish man sitting at her well there in Samaria. That, that's unheard of for a Jewish man to come into Samaria in the first place. She could take one look at him and know Jesus was a Jew. And now he asks her for water? Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritans, let alone Samaritan women. And to drink water from her? Oh, no. 
A Samaritan touched that? That's polluted. I can't touch that. I wouldn't drink that. Jesus talked to her. He would drink the water that she drew. Jesus talked to the people nobody else talked to. Good soul winning lessons here from the master soul winner. Get to be a silent partner in this chapter. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto her, and saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? He told her, if you knew who I was, you'd ask what, the living water I've got. And she's saying, how are you going to get water out of there? You have nothing to draw with. Who are you that you could get water without a vessel? You'd have to be greater than Jacob, who dug this well, and we're still drinking from it. Now, she made a really important note, a really important statement in verse 12 when she said, Our father Jacob, remember, Samaritan, part Jewish, part Gentile, she's claiming her Jewish ancestry when she's talking to Jesus. Our father, yes, you're a Jew, your father's Jacob. I'm a Samaritan, but I still claim Jacob is my father. She wants to know, who are you? How are you greater than Jacob? In verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, now, now think with me a minute. How many of you get tired, you know, you wish you didn't have to get thirsty so much? Wouldn't it be nice? You do mail carrying? I bet you really wish. I get tired of getting thirsty out there in the hot days in the sun. You'd love it if you could take one drink of water and that's the end of it. Now, for us, usually that means go get a glass, go to the faucet, turn on the water, and you drink it. Or maybe you're on the road, you've got to stop somewhere and buy a bottle of water and you drink But think about what not having to thirst anymore meant to, to her. If she was thirsty, she'd have to get her water pot, walk to the well, draw the water up, carry that water. Anybody ever carried a big water jug a long distance? They get heavy. She's got to carry that thing all the way back. So she's got water when she's thirsty. Makes you really grateful if you don't have to keep thirsting and getting more water. When you don't have to do all that. Running water is nice when it doesn't mean run over there to the water supply and get something and drag it back. So this woman is very interested. I can give you water and you're not going to be thirsty anymore. How much better is my day going to be if I don't have to go out to the well multiple times a day to refill the water? Yeah, give me this water. Verse 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. Now I want to stop. I've heard this woman beat up a lot. And I've been guilty of it myself. But Jesus was not calling out her sin with this. That is not what this was about. 
This was Jesus showing his compassion and his understanding of her hurt. Get out of 21st century America. You go to most of the world today, you go back to the early days of the United States, and certainly if you went to Israel 2,000 years ago, you'd find out women didn't get married, and they don't get married. Yeah. Marriage is not an agreement between a man and a woman. It's an agreement between two men. The husband and the father of the bride who gave her. That's why you see the couplet in Scripture, married and given in marriage. She doesn't have any say in this. Her daddy says the okay. That's the two I do's that matter scripturally. The father saying, I give my daughter, I do. And the husband saying, I accept her, I do. So now, from that perspective, you have in her life, she, her father, or if it wasn't her father because something happened to him, it would have been another male relative, gave her to a man in marriage. And the marriage ended when he died or he wrote a bill of divorcement and kicked her out of the home. And somehow a second man took her as wife. And he either died or kicked her out of the home. And a third man, and a fourth man, and a fifth man. And now, there's a man that she's living with. It may not be anything sinful. But a man who's got her in her home under his care, his provision, that's not her husband. It could be something as simple as a brother or an uncle or something taking care of her at this point. That is a tremendous shame and reproach to her to not be married. So when Jesus points out that he knows, never seeing her before, this heartache and pain, this speaks very deeply to her. That's why, in verse 19, the woman saith unto, her, unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She recognizes you're a Jewish man who shows up at this city, first time you've ever been here, and you already know my backstory, everything important about me. You must be a prophet. God must have told you this. So she's got a question in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. She says, all right, you're a prophet sent from God. Answer me this. Am I supposed to worship here in Samaria like my ancestors tell me to do? Or am I supposed to go down to Jerusalem where all the Jews tell us we have to go worship, even though they tell us we don't want you to come here? Notice it says, ye say, meaning the Jewish people, not thou sayest, which would mean Jesus himself. Singular versus plural. She wants to know, here or there? And in verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. In other words, he, she said, here or there? And Jesus said, no. You ever do that? You ask God, this or that? And he says, no. You've got to bring him the blank sheet of paper and ask questions. That's how he answers. Verse 22, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He tells her that you Samaritans don't even know what you worship. The Jews do know what they worship, but that's not what matters. What matters is that the hour has come that you worship in spirit and in truth, and that can be anywhere geographically. Now, I thank God for that. That means that over on the mission field where we live, we can worship God. Here in Alabama, we can worship God. Every church we go to in the U.S. is we're on this furlough, we can worship God. I'm grateful I don't have to three times a year do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. Aren't you? My budget can't cover that. He's opened it up. With Jesus' coming, it was opened up. You can worship anywhere on earth. This poor woman, just like any lost person, is just confused and dumbfounded. You ever been soul winning and the person's just confused as can be by the scriptures? They're lost. They're blinded. They're trying. That doesn't. When they ask questions that seem clueless, it's not that they're trying to throw you off. Or, they're confused. The carnal man cannot understand the things of God. But she comes to it. Okay, there's one more thing she knows in verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. She says, okay, I know you were sent by God, you're a prophet. I don't understand everything you're telling me. But one thing I do know is that God has promised a Messiah, and we're looking for him. Can you tell me about him? Has he come? Is he coming? What do I need to know about him? Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And to borrow a phrase from the Old Testament, she believed God and it was accounted to her for righteousness. This woman just got saved. She believed what God told her. The promised Messiah was before her. And just as she believes the disciples are coming out of the city carrying the food, they're all scared to ask who is she and why is she talking to him, but that's what every one of them is thinking. She turns around, leaves her pot. The whole reason she came out there, he was right. She, she got the living water. She wasn't worried about that water in the well anymore. And she rushes back to town. The disciples get there. They're asking Jesus, they're telling Jesus, here's the food, eat it. And he's, I don't need to eat. I have food that you know not of. What is he talking about? Who gave him food? He tells him, my food, is to, or my meat, is to do the will of God and to fulfill it. Meanwhile, she's been at the gate of the city telling every man that out there at the well, there's a man that told me everything about me. Is that not the Messiah? Go see the man at the well. Go see the man at the well. Go see the Messiah. So now, the disciples are standing there all confused with this food that Jesus won't eat, trying to figure out what do we do now. The men of the city are all coming out in mass toward the well, and Jesus says, Lift up your eyes. Stop looking down at the food and get your eyes up and look at the field. Not these out here. Sychar and the men that are walking out are white to harvest. That was a white field that was ready. And he continues on in verse 36. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That right there proves he's talking spiritually about the harvest for eternal life. 
that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you're entered into their labors. He told them, this field of Sychar is white unto harvest, and you all have done nothing to prepare it. Other people did all the labor to have this field ready, and all you've got to do is harvest it. Well, then who was the laborer? First and foremost, you got the knowledge of the Jewish law, the Old Testament history, that was still retained from the Jewish ancestry of the Samaritans. And then you've got the real worker, this woman, who came and told the men, the Messiah is at the well. Now all the disciples had to do was reap that harvest. All right, so what's my point? How many of you notice soul winning's gotten harder than it was 10 years ago? 20 years ago? 40 years ago? 60 years ago? We've had a problem in America. We've had reap, 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 reap preached. Get out, get out and reap, get out and reap. We got any farmers in here? No? Any gardeners? Okay. Do you just say, I want there to be whatever growing here, and then expect the next day to go out there and reap it? What do you got to do? You got to labor. You don't just walk out there and start sowing. You got to get out the hoe and start breaking up the ground, the shovel, and dig it up. You got to prepare the soil. You got to pull out the rocks. You got to weed stuff out. Over where we live, let me tell you, I, I've dug in that. Red clay baked over where people have dug holes, thrown their trash in, lit it on fire, and then you've had the dust blow back over so you don't even know where it is. I could give you a laundry list of crazy things I've dug out of that ground. And that's not talking about the buildings that have been knocked down and I'm pulling chunks of concrete, the rocks. That's really symbolic of what we've come into, spiritually speaking. But that's what America's state has become because we've been driving the reaper and driving the reaper. But who's going out there and doing the labor, the plowing and the sowing and the watering and the weeding so that there can be a harvest? We've got to take a step back, yes. You're going door to door possibly next Saturday. Are you going to just focus on getting the street? Or would you be happy if you could get a door where somebody just lets you go in and you got to talk to them for 15 minutes and they're willing to let you come back again? What about your neighbors, your co-workers, your classmates, your family members? And then how many of you say, there's somebody I'm praying for, maybe more than one, and they won't even listen. If I get the Bible out, they immediately shut me off and walk away. They, they won't hear it. What do you got to do? You got to plow. You're, they're not ready for the seed yet. They got to be plowed. You got to love on people. The greatest commandment, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. The second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. You got to love lost people. The reality is, we've come to understand on this furlough, my wife and I, as we've been church and church after church, there are two generations of mission field right here in America. 
You know what a millennial is? You know what Gen Z is? How many of them are in this auditorium? Those are tough fields. They don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They don't think like you. But if you don't love people, that may mean listening to them talk about something you don't care about. And not immediately telling them how wrong they are, but actually taking the time just to listen. That may mean helping them buy food, helping them fix their car, get to work, any number of things, as long as it's not sinful to do it. Spending time with them doing stuff that they like, even if you don't like doing it. Building that relationship so that they want to hear what you say. There's a cliche, but it's true. People don't care what you know till they know what you know that you care. And right now, most people over America, especially people 30 and under, don't believe that Christians care. And that's got to be the first step. They not know you care. Then where do you begin? Well, if you've been listening to the person, you know what they don't know and what they do know. And you know, do I need to start at the beginning or do they have that already? Do I need to show how God's power? By the way, let me give you a hint about these generations. They are not guilt forgiveness in their thinking. They are fear power. They don't view the world as there is a right and a wrong and I'm guilty and they don't feel guilty inside about it. They view the world through there are powers that make me do things I don't want to do and I do the things I don't want to do because I'm scared of that. And if I can just be more powerful, I can do what I want to do. And they need to see God's power from Scripture. That's how we're presenting him on the mission field. I have to be careful not to say the name of the country. Showing the power of creation, the power in the flood, power in the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, power in the judgment on the play, in the judgment with the plagues of Egypt, power in preserving his people, power in Jesus Christ's life, raising the dead and casting out demons and stopping the storms and raising the dead. And even the emphasis in the gospel itself is switched. How many of you, when you got saved, the emphasis was Jesus died. You are guilty and Jesus died to pay your price. That's the gospel as, as it was really, yes, he was buried and rose again, but the emphasis was he died. Switching it to Jesus died and was buried and he rose again, power over death. Because the fear of power person hears that Jesus died and that's the focus, they're going to say he's a dead God, he's weak, and he can't help me. And I don't fear him. It's understanding as you listen to the other person, what are the things that are important to them to speak those things from Scripture? Now, okay, I'm going to try this because I'm not having any, I've not been able to get anybody saved in a while. It's not working like it used to. How many agree? It's not working like it used to. The gospel isn't weaker, but it's how we're going about it isn't working the same because we've not been doing all the steps preparing the field. How many of you imagine this? There's somebody you're praying for, you're trying to reach, say, okay, I'm going to ask God to help me to plow that soil, to know how to love that person so I can start sharing scripture. And I'm willing to spend months on this. I'm willing to put the time in. Now you just imagine, six months from now, you've really poured yourself into that person. They've been starting to listen to scripture. They're starting to understand their condition. And then one day, they call you up and say, hey, somebody came from such and such church across town, knocked on my door, told me about Jesus, and I just got saved. 
What are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, man, that was mine. I was supposed to get another notch on my belt. Or are you going to say, amen, I've been praying for you. I'm so glad you got saved. I couldn't be happier. I'll tell you, that's where we're at. You saw pictures up there in our video. We're praying for those people. We're praying for the other couple now that's in the country. That God might have them cross paths and reap the harvest of what we've been laboring over. And I guarantee we will rejoice 100% the same, whether it's us leading them to the Lord or them leading the Lord or somebody else I've never met leading to the Lord. Because what matters to me is they get saved. So what's my point? I want to encourage labor. I want to quickly leave you with 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8. Paul understood this principle, the need for the labor, for the reaping to come. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8, he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul said, I came to Corinth, I preached, I planted seed. Apollos came to Corinth, he preached, it watered that seed I planted. God gave us increase. There have been people say the church in Corinth is growing and we are excited. It's not about me. It's not about Apollos. What was important is what God did. But in verse 8 he says, Every man shall receive according to his own labor. He didn't say according to his own reaping. It's not how many did you personally lead to the Lord. It's how faithful have you been in the labor so that people come to Christ ultimately. I want to encourage you. If you look on your field and it's white to harvest, then please harvest it. But if you look and it's not white to harvest, then have God tell you, where, what do I need to do so it can be white, so it can get harvested? And hop in. Don't look and say, well, God's only given me a bunch of dirt patches, so I'll just sit around and wait. If you've got a bunch of dirt patches, start grabbing the plow and busting up soil. There won't be a harvest until we do that. Pastor Decker.